boards and CEOs increasingly expect their chief marketing officers to function as strategic partners, leveraging every available tool to uphold brand integrity, foster sustainability, harness the power of data analytics, and proactively anticipate market shifts and disruptions. Hello, I'm Jamie Washington, and my expertise lies in marketing and branding strategies that deliver significant profits. With a career spanning over two decades as a global CMO, I've had the privilege of collaborating with Fortune 500 giants like United Airlines, Dunkin' Donuts, Apple, RCA Records, Gillette, and many others. What you might not be aware of is that the brands you adore are actively seeking you out and strategically tailoring their marketing efforts to resonate with you. This visionary orchestration is driven by none other than the chief marketing officer. On this show, the CMO Connect with Jamie Washington, I delve deep into the realms of data, purpose, and the pivotal role played by the CMO. Let's go in. Meet John Steiner, a visionary chief marketing officer thriving in the dynamic landscape of B2B. Each morning, he's fueled by a singular mission to propel customer success toward a larger and faster business objective. As a driving force, at his company, Tech Target, where he is the CMO, John is rewriting the playbook, emphasizing that the beyond the fundamentals, it's buyer activity holds the key. By aligning enterprise tech buyers' information needs with solution buyers' go-to-market strategies, John and his team are crafting a world where everyone emerges victoriously. Now, Tech Target is the global leader in purchase intent driven marketing and sales services that deliver business impact for enterprise technology companies. With over $1 billion in revenue, Tech Target attracts and nurtures communities of technology buyers researching their company's information technology needs. By understanding these buyers' content consumption behaviors, Tech Target creates the purchase intent insights that fuel efficient and effective marketing and sales activities for clients all over the world. Tech Target has offices in Boston, London, New York, San Francisco, Sydney, just to name a few. In this interview, I learned so much from John about volume demand and also learned what does it mean to have unwavering focus on genuine buyer activity. And that will advance your ABM strategies. Let's dive in. All right. Our listeners, I'm so excited you have Jamie Washington with the CMO Connect, and we are here today with another fantastic CMO, the Mr. John Steinert, who is the CMO of Tech Target. John, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. It's great to be here, finally meeting you. Same here, same here. 
I um, I must admit, I have truly enjoyed listening to other podcasts that you've been featured on um, for the last couple of weeks, as well as you and I are now friends on LinkedIn. So it's been fascinating to, to learn more about you and Tech Target. So welcome, welcome again. So I'd like to start the show off, John, with a question. When you were 16 years old, what brand was iconic to you in your eyes? You know, it's pretty hard for me to remember back when I was 16. And I think that's so long ago that I don't know if it's going to resonate with your listeners. I'm a brand guy, Jamie. You know, I think a lot about brands. And so um, it's pretty hard to answer this question. But if I had to call out one, I'd say it's probably Coca-Cola. Um, and uh, that's because Coca-Cola did some great advertising even before that. And that continued to resonate with people in my generation. But if you want to hear about more brands, I'm happy to talk about that. I love it. You know, Coca-Cola is a staple brand I mean, and it's iconic within itself how they have, you know, even the hex color of red will resonate with someone <laughs> to the point they will see that hex color and think of Coca-Cola. And you think about other brands, you know, Target now uses a, a slight variation of that hex color red, but it is a staple brand. And, you know, when I grew up, I grew up during when they had the koala bears. Don't you remember when the, their marketing campaigns with the koala bears in the 90s and the 80s, uh, which was so fascinating. But yes, Coca-Cola is a fantastic brand. Um, can you tell us just a little bit more about Tech Target for our listening audience who may not have heard of Tech Target and know exactly what you guys do? Yeah, sure. I mean, Tech Target is a is a B2B company. And so that's a reason that uh, not so many people have heard of us. Uh, we focus explicitly specializing in um, B2B enterprise technology. And we have two parts to the company. One is that we're the largest publisher on the internet, what's called decision support or purchase decision support content. That is editorial content that helps people make buying decisions when they're looking to solve really kind of gnarly business problems. Enterprise technology is a kind of tech that unless you're really active in business, you may not be exposed to it at all. It's the things that really run companies behind the scenes. And so we have this editorial side of our company and we generate that material for buyers and we give it to them for free or almost for free. We actually require people to register to read that information. And across our roughly 150 websites, um, we cover very specific areas of technology. And this registration process gives us permission to track people mm -hmm. and then to sell their data. So we have explicit permission to track people's behavior. We can see what they're reading. And based on what they're reading, we can predict where they are in a buying cycle. And then we're permitted to sell that information. So we sell that as what's called purchase intent data to technology companies who are looking for ways to better connect to these buyers. 
And then we also do advertising. We do lead generation, a variety of lead generation. We have a huge B2B webinar platform called Bright Talk. We do consulting all to help B2B enterprise tech vendors sell software to companies. Fascinating, fascinating. So you take, so you're, you have data and that data drives your marketing decisions. So there's no uh, room for error because you have the data. So you know exactly what that ideal ICP wants. Yep, with pretty much. Data. So you give us your ideal customer profile we locate we locate those people and their behavior on our network we study that behavior with you and then we help you do personalized communications to them to engage them to wow. uh, help them through their their buying process and to close deals wow oh, i love it i love it i love it now john with that type of data where do you see the marketing industry in 10 years? What, what, I, what's your forecast? I think, that, I think that we have to separate the B2B space from the B2C space. You know, in terms of being a marketer, as you are and I am, there are many things in common between B2B and B2C, uh, yes. but there are really important differences. Absolutely. And so, so in B2C, generally the, the purchase decisions are much smaller. Even if you're buying a house, it's still smaller than buying multi-million dollar software. Um, and so because the purchase decisions are smaller, they involve fewer people, they take less time, they can be automated uh, quite a bit. And so in the B2C space, I think I would predict a great deal of automation. Maybe we'll get to what some of the downsides are of that. In the oh, yeah. B2B space, <laughs> the decisions and the transactions tend to be much larger. They take more time um, and they involve more people. And so if you take people and time and complexity, um, it's much harder to automate that. And there's a need uh, in many purchases, and certainly there's there's you know huge use of person-to-person -person interaction, what we might call sales interaction. Okay. Um, and so a big question is, do we anticipate there being a need for salespeople ten years from now? Um, I think if we put ourselves in the shoes of buyers. Many buyers, particularly younger cohorts of buyers, will say that because of the internet, the availability of information, I really don't need salespeople very much. But as these buyers mature in their careers and they get involved in bigger and bigger, riskier decision-making, um, wherever there's risk, it's often helpful, maybe because we're human beings, to talk to someone. If there's risk, if there's a problem, you know how if you have a problem in an interaction with um, somebody like your credit card supplier and, and you try to get answers to your questions, 
you know how frustrating it is when you don't have a person to talk to? Oh, yes. Partially, partially because those systems don't work so well yet. But even when we think of how intelligent sort of AI-driven systems could become, there comes a point where you do, I think, you will still want person-to-person -person interaction. So 10-year mm -hmm. prediction, I don't think that the role, the, the profession of sales is going to go away, uh, but I do think it's going to change dramatically. And maybe we should talk about marketing too. Uh, yes. Yes. So let's, gonna, let's talk let's, about marketing. <laughs> let's unpack it because, as you know, in our industry, some people feel that in 10 years we won't even exist. Like there will be no marketing teams. In any organization, I don't believe that, but I want you to unpack it. So let's talk about it, John. What are you thinking? Well, well, well it's, it's interesting that we started off on the idea of brands. And to me, and I, and I talked about um, consumer brands. Um, and as you probably know from all the work you've done in marketing and maybe schooling you've had, um, in, in consumer brands, there's often very little difference, real difference, between two products like Coke and Pepsi. Right. And so the, the only real difference is the emotion that the brand can, can connect with or can leverage to differentiate itself. And so in the consumer space, brands are, in my opinion, will continue to be very important and it will, be, it will continue to be critical that brands differenti differentiate themselves from each other by creating emotional connections with their target audiences. So what is the analog to this um, in the B2B space? In the B2B space, differentiation tends to be, well, we think it tends to be rational. That is, it's not emotional. It's based on real differences and things like return on investment and um, ease of implementation and things like that. Those rational elements are fact-based um, and they are potentially unique to each company. Mm -hmm. the, the nature of AI, on the other hand, is that it's more about generalizing availability of information rather than creating uniqueness. So it's good at telling you what's out there. It's not very good at, at telling you how to be different from what's out there. So the question in my mind is, are we likely to see a premium on people who can help their companies differentiate, who can tell different stories or are we likely to see just the genericization, the making generic and making you know, everything look alike that we've seen in kind of a lot of product categories anyway? I mean, I was just recently, you know, when I look at Instagram, some of the things I follow back to the branding thing are sneakers. Oh, and, <laughs> and there are like shapes of sneakers now where you can buy the same shape from like a dozen different brands. They might have a, like a different letter on them, but it's the same model sneaker. You know, there's this big trend towards uh, 
uh, kind of classic styles. Right. And, and to me, that's an expression or a symptom of genericization. You know, the, the only difference in the new one is that it's coming from a different brand. And so you don't want to be too different from your friends, but you want to be a little bit different. So you buy the same model, but from a different brand. And, and that strikes me as, well, a type of differentiation, but certainly not enough to sustain a brand, you know, for the long term. And that the companies that will win are the companies that find the right combination of the scale that AI can help with, um, but the critical importance of clearly differentiating what they're doing and how that benefits their customer. And I think it's going to require human beings to help um, kind of mediate between the poles on scale on the one hand and uniqueness on the other. I, ag I agree wholeheartedly, John, and thank you for sharing your insight because if AI and some AI is not even machine learning, you know, um, if, if we just can unpack this a little more, a lot of consumers feel that AI just came, you know, on, on, on the stage, on the main stage six months ago. Like, oh, here's chat GPT. But we've been dealing with AI for years. Uh, <laughs> it just wasn't, you know, accessible to the solopreneur or um, the mini entrepreneur. It just wasn't accessible to them. But Google Analytics, um, you know, the analytics in, you know, Meta that, you know, Meta provides, that's been in existence for years. Um, well, with that being said, and you talk about, you know, the, the excuse me, and you talk about the difference between what AI can do and what a human can do. I feel that there has to be some sort of cross collaboration. And I'd like to know from you, do you feel that there is a place for AI in the branding marketing organizations? Do you feel that there's a place where you can maybe use a little bit of the tool or not use it at, at all? What, what do you feel about that? Oh, I think without a doubt, there's a big place. So if we take the machine learning stuff and the algorithms aside that help us parse data, um, mm -hmm. those are really important applications. But to your point, they're not what we're going to be interacting with as, say, creatives. But if you think about how you want to differentiate your company and how difficult it is to do that with words and pictures, <laughs> with words and pictures, for example, and you think about the processes that as a creator you have to use, uh, having another tool that helps you examine and reflect on things that you've created out of your imagination is very, very helpful. What, it, what I think it will do is make creators, creatives more productive and more, more creative because they will be able to bounce their ideas off of another information source an expert information source that will help them um, decide whether what they have is new, whether it's strong, um, whether it's original or not. And so people who create new ideas or new ways of talking or representing ideas 
um, will actually use the tool to help them generate ideas and um, and hone their craft. So that's not right. going to save anybody work. It's it's going to magnify um, <laughs> the abil the abilities of people who dedicate themselves to creation. It's not going to save people work. Um, so if you say, well, will it make a great creator out of average people who don't have the time or the desire or the understanding of what it means to put in the work? I don't think it will. I don't think it's going to help people who aren't really fully dedicated to trying to find something new or different or better um, become like that. So the average person who doesn't really want to be a creator can use, will be able to use, can use like ChatGPT now to do, you know, C-level work. It's still C-level work. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be, because they haven't put in the time to understand what A-level work is, Right. They're not going to be able to use the tool to get to A level. So you don't create genius um, overnight. Genius is built through lots of practice and self self editing. Um, and uh, so I think the tool, these tools, will help with that. But they're not going to make geniuses out of lazy people. I agree. I don't know if you've played with the AI. But I, I dibbled and dabbled a little bit, asked, you know, a few questions that I felt a digital marketing manager would know. And what was, the output was wrong. <laughs> no, you wouldn't say X, Y, and Z to a client. No, this would not be the campaign you would run for purpose driven. This is more customer centric versus purpose driven. But as you said, those type of things, the the I'm gonna call it just the bot, the bot would know because it's C level. Right. It doesn't it, it can't differentiate the differences between campaigns. Probably doesn't even know that you know, different targeted audiences want different things. So I agree. And I think some people are going to get in trouble if they feel that they can totally uh, erase their marketing budget and just use the AI tool. Um, but with that being said, John, I have to ask, if you weren't an amazing CMO, what would you be? Yeah, that's a super hard question. You know, and, and all your questions have been rather harder than you, you may have imagined. Now, because, I, you know, I'm sort of nearing the end of my career. And part of what one does at the end of one's career is you reflect on exactly that question. You know, oh. what do you think you, what do you think you might have done otherwise? And I think it's super important um, when you've made a huge commitment to a particular career direction that you you try to encourage yourself that you made some of the right decisions and that what you've done has made a contribution. But that said, I will say, I kind of divided it up into, into three categories. There's one area that I think I knew nothing about um, 
and I probably had a negative perspective on it. And I would say, in, in generally speaking, I might have considered a career in sales. And the reason, the reason um, I wanted to talk, talk to you about this is that I didn't know anything about sales. And one of the things I know now is that people who commit to really doing sales well, okay, almost in almost independent of where they land from an industry perspective, if they do sales really well, they make good money. Uh, and so, so I'm yeah. thinking about careers. I didn't think enough about money, and I didn't understand how money is made. Um, and no money can be made without a sale happening. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. so yeah. honing that skill can be really important. And learning that skill, whether you are, you know, in a career as a salesperson, or you simply have sales as part of what you do, which, as you know, we all really do. Um, we are trying to help our companies and we're trying to help ourselves. And that is sales. Um, yes. Even in, well, certainly politics is sales. Diplomacy is sales and negotiation. So this skill set is so important. And really understanding that, that it is a good thing, that people need to buy things, they need to solve problems, that there's nothing negative about helping them with that process, would have been so helpful to me because... I would have started to see that I needed some skills uh, that I didn't really have, and that if I if I gained these skills, it would open a lot of opportunities and alternatives for me. Um, would have been super helpful when I was little, you know. Oh, I know, absolutely. You know, with the tech industry, and I've had several um, tech clients. I've always been fascinated of um, the sales engineer, and that's usually the sales, you know, that's their fancy name for the salesperson, <laughs> but how a sales engineer will come in and they are able to get bonuses. They have commission based on top of their salaries and you think a CMO, most of the times we get a severance package, <laughs> but I too feel the same way that if I wasn't a CMO, I would, I probably would do something in sales. I don't think I, I looked at it in the way as far as finances. I didn't look at that trajectory the way I should have. Um, but I wanted to also go back to something you said, John, about my questions being hard. And I, I want to share this with our audience. And so I have organically about 12,000 digital marketing managers uh, that follow me throughout my social media platforms. And the majority of them, about 63%, we did a survey, about 63% of them have budget. And then on LinkedIn, uh, a lot of my friends are CMOs. And so when I put the call out, 
um, literally, I just just posted it and said, hey, guys, I'm getting ready to start this podcast. And I want to talk to the, the, the greatest marketing minds that we have. Like, I want to talk to the best of the best CMOs. I'm not interested in talking to my friends who make the Forbes list. I love my friends who make the Forbes list. So those that are listening, don't get mad. But it's so easy when you've got, you know, a $20 million budget for marketing, you know, that $6 million Coca-Cola commercial, it better work. <laughs> better. Um, but with that being said, John, I just asked them to just DM me. And if you go back on LinkedIn and you can see those that you and I are connected to, it's about half a dozen that you and I are connected to, maybe a little bit more than that. But nevertheless, a few of them DM'd me and was like, Jamie, you, you should you should look at John Steiner. So <laughs> yeah, so just to let you know that the work that you're doing, you know, over at Tech Target and the work that you've done in your career, it speaks volumes because people are watching and people are looking. And so, sorry, my questions are hard, but they're really going to help this next generation, but also the generation of CMOs. You know, there's things that we still don't know. We are still forever learners. And so being able to speak with you and ask you these type of questions is really, really helpful. So I just wanted to just let you know a little bit about how you got here. Well, you're very kind. I, I love the point about being forever learners because I think that is something it's that's great about a career in marketing and it is descriptive of so many of the people I've met who find themselves in marketing. It is the type of profession where um, the ability uh, that offers the opportunity to continuously learn and the willingness and desire to learn is so important in this process of helping differentiate your company or differentiate your product. If you don't learn about the category that it's in, how can you possibly differentiate it? And so it is a place where you find people who like to learn, who really have their eyes open. And I would say, different from sales, that it it's people who are a little bit more introverted sometimes. Um, yes. You know, we can force ourselves to be extroverted. Um, you're also a boss, so, you know, you have to have a very public face. I do as well. Um, but earlier in career, I'd say people are more introverted um, because they haven't developed that part of, of the skill set. And they might say, or I might say, and I'm a shy person naturally, you have to get over that to succeed in business. And for a marketer, a, a great way to do it is by trying to articulate what you've learned. So if you have heard of me or if you've read things that I've written, that's an example of my working hard to capture the things that I've learned, partially for my own benefit, to be proud of what uh, I've contributed to the industry and partially to project um, a personality or or a brand, not myself, my company's brand, um, mm -hmm. that helps differentiate us in the marketplace. So this idea of finding different forms of extroversion where you can, can you can contribute 
yes. almost as a salesperson is, um, is an opportunity that marketing provides for introverted people who like to learn. I think it's absolutely critical, and I think all the young people out there who might listen have to have to gain an understanding that contribution to anything, to your company, to society, requires output. <laughs> it requires it ac action that you must train yourself to go the next step after streaming wonderful things to try to make those things or describe those things or think about those things, evaluate them and compare them. You can't only be taking in. If you don't contribute, um, you won't maximize the opportunity uh, ahead of you. So, I mean, I'm not saying that you, you it's not an option to continuously learn and not contribute. What I am saying is that through contribution, maybe that you get paid more and you create a legacy that will last um, beyond you. I love it. Yes. That was, <laughs> that was, that was amazing. Contribution. Let's talk about contribution. There's, I feel that CMOs, we are multifaceted. You know, sometimes we're asked to build the brand, um, sustain the brand, solve a societal problem, <laughs> um, make sure we're purpose driven. It's a lot that's asked of marketer of, of usually the marketing team, but it also is very difficult at times for CMOs to articulate that to other departments, whether that's the CEO, the CFO, the other teams. And I'd love to just ask you, do you, well, I'm sure you have a seat at the table, but for that first year CMO that may not have a seat at the table to really fight for their budget, to fight for the cause of the campaign and why they want to have this particular campaign. What encouragement could you give to them? Hmm. Yeah, no easy questions for you, Danny. So I, I would say, um, first, let's start with listening and trying to understand the culture of the organization that you belong to. Um, before you go to try to capture a hill that you believe in. Because you have to evaluate what the chances um, of you actually being able to do exactly what you want. And I sort of feel that if, you know, through painful experience, that without proper assessment of the kind of the context that you're in, uh, you stand the risk of really going way out on a limb and it's very easy for that limb to break. Mm. And so, so I think it's important that you look for ways to build your reputation as a contributor. You know, every organization you join has a culture that exists before you get there. And if you're super great, you will change that culture a little bit. But 
until you understand that culture and understand what drives those people and how locked the, locked in they are in particular ways of doing things, uh, you stand the risk of doing something that they will not see as relevant. They might see it as a distraction or a waste. So I would suggest you first look to how are you going to contribute to something they've kind of already got going. And by doing well there, by contributing in a way that is recognized as contribution, you start to create the opportunity to add things that might be uniquely your perspective. So if you talk about purpose-driven, you really have to look at your company and to see if there's any um, pattern of being purpose-driven in the first place. So I'm not gonna argue that we all want our companies to be more purpose-driven. What I'm arguing is that how much personal risk you take uh, to expend energy on something should be based on a clear view of what is the likelihood that you will succeed um, in the near term. I agree. I agree. I had a, um, a, a brief chat with a friend of mine who's a CEO who had just hired a CMO and the CEO is more data driven. He, he loves the numbers and he's about the numbers and he's data driven. And I love that. And he hired a, what I would call a consumer driven CMO that was more in tuned with what the customer had to say was more in tuned with you know, does the customer like this particular product? What has the customer, they wanted to do more surveys, they that type. And they continued to butt heads for 12 months. And then it was like, it's not working. And I love what you just, the advice you just gave John, where you said, you know, you have to make sure that what you're contributing is what the company really needs. Because if that if that's not, if you're purpose-driven and the company is data-driven, you're going to have problems. You're going to have problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's very much a Myers-Briggs kind of aha that says if, you know, you want to go out on a date with a person, um, you need to understand where they're coming from before you make your approach or you're not even going to get the first date. Now, you may not have a relationship <laughs> thereafter because you're so different uh, or you could be complementary right you could be two sides of the coin and a perfect match but um, in business I think the ability of one person who's not the owner of the company to change the company um, is real but um, but not you know not uh, overwhelmingly strong although you can change companies without a doubt. It usually takes a coalition. <laughs> yes, I agree. John, if someone wanted to reach out to you, what's the best place for someone to be able to reach out to you? I would say you know, LinkedIn is a really easy place. Um, and if they really wanted to get through, it'd probably be better to do it on a personal basis, meaning to say that you describe who you are and what you want from that interaction. 
because um, that way it can be fulfilled more directly um, and not confused as being, you know, what I need to sell you a new um, widget, exactly. which a lot of people do, as, as you know. Yes, you just never know what's coming after you hit the accept button. You just never know. <laughs> and they're getting a little savvier than ever. Uh, but they come after those that have the budget. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you accepted my invite. <laughs> John, well, so, you know, I, I'm very fond of accepting invites from people in marketing and especially people in the Boston area. Um, I came back to Boston after being away for, I don't know, 35 years. And so I, I'm really interested in, in building relationships and marketing relationships in, in this city. Oh, oh, I love that, John. Love that. And I have one last question for you. You've now been working with Tech Target for, I believe, seven and a half years. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> so the Wall Street Journal posted, uh, they published a study, I'm sorry, from Spencer Stewart. And it talked about the CMOs, you know, our lifespan being 40 months, if that. And in that article, it was a little salacious because it also said that the CMOs, <laughs> the CMOs were like the most dangerous of the whole entire C-suite, that the CMOs were the, the ones that were in silos. And I'm just like, really? I think we always talk, but nevertheless, um, you know, why do you think that that is an industry norm to the point that the Wall Street Journal would actually post that steps and pu publish that study? Well, you know, I think there's the obvious reason that it's so kind of dramatic <laughs> that it's good, it's, it's, you know, it's good news. Um, uh, it's fun to read about yes. how, how perilous being a CMO is. Um, but I also think it's something else that you were saying that um, the, the CMO role especially now and especially in B2B has a number of distinct areas and skill sets um, that are really impossible to all build to you know great excellence. So each one of us has an area that we're best at and we yes. have more or less skill in the other necessary areas to operationalize the whole marketing aspect of the go-to-market. Um, unfortunately, it's, there's still this one title, um, even though mm. there's multiple areas. And so what often happens is that people are looking to hire expertise in all the areas and the area that matters to them most is not the area that attracts them most. And so they hire somebody who has attractive skills or attractive personality traits, but is actually weak in the trait that matters most to the CEO at the time. And so they hire the wrong person to do the thing that was most important. Or they hire a person who's interested in emphasizing a particular area um, that, while is part of the job, was not a big emphasis. You often see it in, in brand and demand or product and campaigns. Um, very different 
overlapping to some extent, but real areas of expertise. And so no CMO is going to have perfect expertise across all the areas. It's really critical that you that you get to an agreement with the people interviewing you on, on what they really want first, you know, first, second, and third, and to see if there's, if you have the ability to get them over the, over the hump on that first one, uh, which is bothering them, them the most. There's that piece. And then there's the fact that um, companies change their minds. Yeah. And, uh, no. and so they, no. they think that they think they want to do one thing. So they hire a particular type of CMO and then they change their minds. So we need a big brand campaign. You need a great brand CMO for that. And you do that for 18 months. And instead, you actually need, you know, volume demand generation. And that CMO knows nothing about it. So you hire uh, um a unidimensional, one-dimensional CMO, and of course you've got to find somebody different. I think a better way to do it is not necessarily hire the CMO. It's more to build out the marketing capabilities that you need, yes. and then think about how best to manage that. Um, but that's you know at a bigger company. For a small company, if you hire a CMO, you hire them for one particular reason that you have and you empower them to fill in their blind spots as you need those over time. But don't expect one person to really know how to do all these multiple roles. I love that. All right, you, all right listeners, you heard it from John. And for those HR and our lovely CEOs, Make sure that you know exactly what you're looking for um, with that CMO. Make sure it aligns and don't try to hire one CMO to do everything. It'd be better to empower them. And if they need to outsource or they need to build out the marketing team, they are empowered by their CEO to do just that. John Steiner, thank you so much for being on the CMO Connect with me today, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Jamie. It's been great. Thanks.